We are very fortunate today to be speaking with Bob Darden, who is an associate professor of journalism at Baylor University. He's also the conceptual architect and the in-house expert for the Black Gospel Music Restoration Project, which has been going on for a couple of years here at Baylor University. And as I understand it, Bob, it started really in earnest with an op-ed that you wrote for the New York Times. This was in 2005? That's correct. I had finished the book, People Get Ready, A New History of Black Gospel Music. And during the course of the research and the writing, I would come across a song that had been a game changer for not just the Christian industry, but for the secular industry. And I'd get all these wonderful quotes about how the song was so influential. So I'd finish that paragraph and I'd go online or I'd go do other research in any way I could and found out that song is not available for love or money. It is simply not available. And that happened over and over again. And in the course of my research, I started talking to some of the great collectors of black gospel music, both here and abroad. And we came up with a figure that 75% of all black gospel music from the golden age, 1945 to roughly 1970, is lost. It is unavailable. It has either never been released, it has been lost, it has been thrown in landfills, it's tied up on litigation, any number of reasons. And I was so frustrated by the time I was at the end of the book that I sat down and bashed out a editorial that said, in a sense, that if we, at this generation, allows this music, the music that is at the heart of all American music, to be lost, irretrievably lost, then future generations will think badly of us. That will be, in fact, a sin. And the New York Times liked it, ran it, and the next day my email box and my uh, phone were overfull of messages. So you say it's at the heart of all American music, and that's something I'd like to hear you elaborate on because it's a key reason why we should care about this music. So could you talk a little bit about just how this seems to you to be really a bedrock upon which American music rests? Sure. Oh, indigenous American music, outside of the Native American music, we can trace back to a dozen or so slaves who land up in New England in the 1600s. As best we can tell, they arrive singing. And as best we can tell from contemporary accounts, both here and in Africa, they're singing either one of two things. They are singing religious-related material, or they're singing work songs. More than likely, as I've gotten deeper and deeper into this, I believe they're singing both in every song. And that's why you have a song like Michael Row the Boat Ashore, a rowing song from the days before bridges, and the next line is, Hallelujah. It's all one and the same. You breathe and you live and you pray and you sing and you work. This music takes hold, particularly in the South, and then in spreads. And from the secular side, the work music side, what will become later known as the blues, although it was certainly never called that during that time. And on the religious side, the spirituals, which will morph very easily into jubilee, arranged spirituals, which will become the foundation, along with the blues, of what we call black gospel music. And from those two strands, all the other things that we talk about at the very core of it here, from the work song and the religious songs, does come the blues and the jazz and ragtime on one end and rock and roll and country when they all start blending down the road. If you're an archaeologist, you don't want to leave out the Cretaceous period. And if you're a musicologist, you don't want to leave out what springs from America. 
And that's from this music. So when we hear this music, we're hearing a rich cultural heritage uh, that was here in the United States. In, in what ways are we hearing that as a vital part of our culture today? It's been said that virtually all of the slang, virtually all of the music, virtually all of the dance, and in so many areas in American popular culture today originate in the black community. And when you talk about where jazz comes from and where it's picked up so quickly by white audiences and white jazz people to the point that sometimes they think, well, that's what jazz was and is. It was a white product. But no, we can take it a whole lot further back before Louis Armstrong. It is a a wonderful, curious way that God's economy works on these things that in a nation for so long that one drop of black blood would make you black for, you know, one-sixteenth. And yet a population which was never more than 10% of American culture could dominate cultural jazz, popular culture in this country. And whether it's how people talk or sing or dance, that continues to a great degree today. The richness and diversity of black cultural expression continually bleeds over. And that's why today... Nine out of ten rap CDs are sold to white kids. So let's talk about that richness and variety a little bit. When we say black gospel music, we're saying one thing, but I know that there are many different kinds of black gospel music. It's not just that one thing. So could you talk a little bit about the varied strands of black gospel music and uh, what their particular kinds of influences or your particular interests in them are? Sure. And when we say black gospel, that's to differentiate it from the greater term gospel music, meaning any religious music, or southern gospel music, which is a particular uh, quartet, white sound. And in the black gospel world, they don't call it black gospel, it's just gospel, and they know what they're talking about. Yeah, there are several different strands that have continued, and some wax and some wane at different times. But in the beginning, it was strictly a choral music when it becomes named gospel. Now, before that, we have the gospel blues of Blind Willie Johnson and the others. It begins as a choral phenomenon in Chicago under Thomas Dorsey and Mahalia Jackson. Very quickly, it becomes a solo phenomenon of people like Mahalia Jackson. And then the groups start emerging, both mixed male and female, and then male or female. The kinds that stay with us until today is there's still great, wonderful mass choirs that continue to sing pretty much as they have sounded from the last 50 years. And the reason that they don't stay strong all the way through the history of American recorded music is it is so difficult with the primitive technology to record a mass choir. And live recordings, as you know, don't really become popular until the late 1950s, early 1960s. So meanwhile, it's a lot easier to get four or five or six men around a single microphone. Even though there may be six, it's always called quartets. And from that will emerge the hard-shouting blues of rhythm and blues and soul music, where you start pushing one voice on top of the others. But in the beginning, when all of them have are singing at the same in harmony, it's more what we call jubilee. And there are still groups who do jubilee today, but not many. It's mostly a cappella. A little more formal, they'll stand still, whereas the gospel artists began very early moving around and moving to the beat. So those three strands, solo, choir, and quartet. 
Today, the quartet phenomenon is nearly gone, I'm sorry to say. Most of that has moved into rhythm and blues and other places. It's hard to get four or five singers who sing that well together because everybody wants a solo career. There's still a couple of the old quartets from the Golden Age still traveling and touring with original members. Um, Mighty Clouds of Joy are probably the best known, the Jackson Southern Airs, and a few others. So something you've said there uh, brings up another point I'd like to explore. This is a performance practice rooted in a spiritual tradition which emerges from the experience of worship. It's also a commercial phenomenon, with Mahalia Jackson selling 8 million copies of a record. So is there a tension in the culture of black gospel music between its origins in a kind of communal act of worship and what it became, which was an artifact that you would pay money for and actually be able to own that record and play it again. Well, that, that dichotomy, that tension continues even through today. For Mahalia to sell 8 million copies, she can't sing straight black gospel music. She starts having to have Mitch Miller do her arrangements and 101 strings back in her, and she starts singing quasi-pop songs, and she starts adding things that will make her more palatable to a, a more general audience. And it can be argued, despite the fact that she has one of the great voices of all of recorded music, that later Mahalia, I know we're talking early Elvis and late Elvis, but late Mahalia sounds dangerously close, you know, to elevator music. It is just smothering that incredible voice under things that will make it sweeter. Likewise, when she does get successful by doing that sort of thing, she there becomes a tension within the church, and she doesn't do as many churches, partly because they can't afford her. Well, Mahalia never charged before. She always took up love offerings. The problem with that is you can starve to death on love offerings, particularly when you're playing poor black churches and getting from one town to the next. The next big group, the next biggest selling group, the Clara Ward singers have the same problem. Once they're doing original gospel, they're doing fine. But once they start making money and start doing a little more accessible music and start playing non-churches, then the church will turn its back on them. In fact, the first big gospel star before Mahalia, Sister Rosetta Tharp, her biggest controversy was the fact that she would play in both worlds, sing both the sacred and the profane. There is still an element of that going on today, but not to the same degree, I don't think. It is acceptable for Kirk Franklin or Yolanda Adams to sing a concert hall. I don't think they'll ever be able to sing it in a club or a nightclub, but frankly, they're both too big to need to. Donnie McClurkin doesn't have to sing smaller venues. He does, the American Airlines Center. But for the great mass of gospel artists from the very beginning, it has barely been enough to get by on. And the number who actually made a good living is tiny and probably always will be playing the smaller venues and smaller churches, often for love offerings, and doing it because they're called to do it and because they have no other thing else they can do. As I have been looking at your own journey through this musical landscape and how that's been a part of who you are as a person— it seems to me maybe fair to say that some of that obscurity or doing it as a sense of calling is part of what draws you to that music. Is that is that part of, uh, of what the Bob Darden story is here? Uh, maybe I'm just pulling for the underdogs. Yeah, the stuff that resonates the most with me, the stuff I play over and over again, are typically the lesser-known artists, the ones who have no hope of commercial airplay the ones who maybe only have enough money to record two sides, 
and maybe nobody ever hears that song again outside their family and their immediate friends. And in fact, the great bulk of those 45s are still in a garage somewhere. There was a wonderful tradition in the black community for many years that a big church that would bring a gospel artist in, and after a while they become friends on a personal level. And that church needs a new roof. Well, they need to raise money quick for that roof. The gospel artist is under contract with the label, so they can't do anything officially. So they would record an album, literally an album, in that church with their choir, and she would come in and sing. It would never be billed as an Albertina Walker album or a Dorothy Love Coates album. It would just be the first church, Pentecostal, apostolic. And, but everybody who bought it knew who it was. And they would be cheap pressings with somebody's daughter did the cover, and it was cut and pasted in a local studio. And some of my favorite music comes from those kind of free, unpolished, unrestrained, not worried about commercial. If it, the song needs 10 minutes to be sung, we'll do 10 minutes on it as the spirit moves. And that's been same kind of music in the second word that I'm drawn to, to do it yourself. Let me ask you about one of those, which I understand was a find that you uncovered on a 45 from Mark Custom Records, The Mighty Wonders of Aquasco, Maryland. Uh, this is a song called Old Ship of Zion with a soloist by the name of John Stewart Jr. And I, I want our uh, listeners to be able to hear that song. But before I play that song, could you set it up for us? Give us some context. That actually comes from the incredible collection of Bob Maravich in Chicago, who is the largest collector of gospel 45s, perhaps in the world. And Mr. Maravich has been very generous with the Black Gospel Music Restoration Project, allowing us to copy all of his 45s. And we'll return the originals, but we have harvested these incredible songs. He bought a large batch of gospel 45s on the East Coast at one point came back, and he goes through and listens to all of them carefully and blogs about him in his Black Gospel blog. And this particular one he had never heard of, and neither the artist, in fact, at the time, hadn't heard of Aquasca, Maryland. Mark Records, he had heard once or twice, but it's not a record label. It's more or less an, a vanity where you go in on a street corner, speaking of Elvis, kind of like Elvis did. I've got 50 bucks, okay, you got an hour in the studio, you can cut two tracks, and we'll give you a 50-45s when you leave. As best we can tell, that's what happened here. The Mighty Wonders, a local or regional group, went into the studio sometime in the early 1950s. What drew Bob to this 45 was not this song, which he didn't know, was the flip side, which had allusions to Dr. Martin Luther King, which always makes it interesting. He played it, liked it, flipped it over as kind of an afterthought and played it, and as my English friends say, he was gobsmacked. He sends that in a batch down to our audio engineer here in Waco at the Black Gospel Music Restoration Project, Tony Tatey. And Tony goes through several dozen a day as he's digitizing them. He gets to this one, he plays it, and he stops and he calls me on the phone and says, you need to come over here. And he took me into the soundproof room where the studio is and dimmed the lights and we put that on those state-of-the-art speakers. And he played it in the dark, and we turned around to look at me and say, what'd you think? I had tears on my face. I don't want to build this song up too much from that step, expecting you to have that kind of transcendent feeling about it. But of the thousands we have heard since, something about this one grabbed both Tony I and I and Bob apparently as well. With its 
honesty and the transparency of the performance. Clearly a one take. The guy sounds like he's listened to a lot of Sam Cooke growing up. He has just the hint of a lisp. It is a, an arrangement of an old spiritual that was arranged again by the Pilgrim Jubilees. And Bob Mirovich has spent, and I have spent now two years trying to find anything in the world about the group, about any survivors, about any heirs, wanting to know if there's any more of this out here like this, uh, or any of the members still alive. And it's meant so much to me that when I go speak on the project around the state, I often end with this. And invariably, people want to know the same thing. Where can I get a copy of it? And one of my dreams was to make this heavenly music as widely available as possible. And this is one of the songs that I would do first. Well, let's take a listen to it now. This is the Mighty Wonders of Aquasco, Maryland, singing Old Ship of Zion. And the soloist is John Stewart, Jr. Tis the old ship of Zion. voices? I hear what I hear in the best gospel music, a honesty, a hint of generations of pain. I hear a hopefulness that sustained them through those years of pain. I hear artists that have been transported for even a two and minutes and 12 seconds, 
that everything they're singing, they're doing for the glory of God. And whether anybody buys this or it's a million seller, they were going to sing it the best they could. And the first time I played this to a group, I was speaking in Fort Worth. And it was at a retirement center. And I did the history of gospel music, talked about the project, and wanted to end with a song that we had digitized. And when it was over, a number of the, the dear saints were, were crying. And I realized that I had a real warm feeling at the time and that like there was a, a cloud of witnesses with me as that song was being heard. And I, I don't know if any of those guys are still alive or not. And, and you know, fantasy, imagination, I'd like to think they were listening in the heaven. And I realized that this may have been the largest number of people ever to hear that song. And things 50-something years old, they may never have ever actually played to a larger group than this. And 50 years later, this unknown quartet moved a number of senior citizens of different faiths into such a way that they were in tears. And that image has stayed with me. And I open every box that arrives at the Black Gospel Music Restoration Project, hoping for another song that resonates. And although none have hit me quite that way, I haven't heard any that haven't been a good use of two minutes and 20 seconds of my time. So it sounds to me that you have a great deal of confidence that there is more music out there that needs to reach a wider audience for the sake of the music, for the sake of the musicians, for the sake of what the music and the musicians are pointing to in their art. Uh, what do you see as the future for the Black Gospel Music Restoration Project? This is a project that Baylor University has been working on for some time. It's been supported uh, by the Riley family and the Riley Digitization Project. There's an endowment, the Lev Pritchard III Endowment for traditional black music. There's clearly a great deal of interest in furthering these efforts. Um, you're the man who's taken this journey with this music. Uh, what do you see, what would you like to see as the next steps? I would like to see, first off, that Mr. Charles Royce, who gave the initial uh, money to set it up, have total strangers walk up to him and say thank you. I'd like to see, at some point, we have enough material here that we have some idea of how much material we have. We don't know. There's one very good uh, catalog put together by Bob Lawton that is as close as we have to some kind of definitive number of major labels. And yet we receive stuff every week that's not in that catalog. And I don't mind getting records by artists I don't recognize. There's a lot of artists out there. What bothers me is when I get an LP from a label I've never heard of before. And that means there's a hole in my education, and that means there could be a whole lot of more discs out there that we'd never, or may never, get. I'd like to see us work until the kingdom comes to get however many more out there, whether we have 1% or 10, I don't know. And, and my biggest fantasy, the one I indulge myself on, 
every now and then is that we'd take this show on the road, that we would get in an 18-wheeler and put a digital recording portable studio in it and a scanner for the disc and a scanner for the photographs. And I'd park at uh, Pilgrim's Rest Baptist Church on the south side of Chicago, and the word would get out. And young people and old could come, and we'd have a gallery of photographs, and we'd have listening rooms and everything digitized so they could hear the songs they haven't heard in 50, 60 years. And if Grandma had some OLPs, that we could make a copy. And if there's a picture of grandfather with Sam Cooke, we could make a copy of that, give them back the original and save that. And that we could share this legacy with the grandkids who come with grandma, that this music is wonderful, it still matters, and it still impacts the world even today, even though so much of it's lost and most people don't know it exists. So the people who are listening to this podcast uh, will, I think, be moved by this vision and may want to help. Are there particular ways people can either contribute to the project in terms of uh, monetary gifts or in terms of knowledge they might have of recordings or of participants? Indeed there is. Gardner, we have a, it is a, a charitable organization. These are tax donations, uh, gifts. If you give us money and it will go 100% to the project. If you have discs that you love and can't bear to part with, but you'd like to see other people share them, we'll pay for the shipping and the insurance there and back. And if you'd like, we'll make you a digital copy in any format that you'd like of the music you sent us. We have an endowment that, as you mentioned, that's been set up that we can uh, make sure and ensure that this continues, whatever the market and whatever else goes on. Baylor's been incredibly generous, but for instance, the audio engineer would need a full-time salary, and we'd need enough money to endow that, so no matter what else happens, that this will continue. I think we'll always receive material, but there are times we won't have a body in there to make that digitization process. Well, it can't just be anybody. We have to spend the money to hire the somebody who's both expert in recording, but expert in recording archival quality music and music of this age. Some of the discs we receive are in really, really bad condition. And I've been amazed at the quality of sound he's been able to tease out of them. Discs that have been in underwater in the basement that are so badly warped, I never would have dreamed you could get a signal. And discs that are as loved, so loved, and played so often, they look like glass. And yet Tony's been able to manipulate the stylus to get a, a rich, warm sound out of vinyl. Yeah, there's a number of things you could do. And on our, our website and the uh, address we're about to give you, we'll be glad to talk with you and do anything we can because what I've discovered is where most of the people working on the project have other jobs through the library, this has been a labor of love for them too. And they do it all, a lot of it on their own time on top of their regular jobs. And certainly I'm not making any money out of this. This is just maybe this is my calling. I'll never sing like that. But maybe my calling is to make sure other people who need to hear it can hear people who sing like that. Clearly, this is a love story, and it's a story of connections between people who care. And it's been a real privilege to speak with you about this. We've been speaking with Bob Darden, Associate Professor of Journalism at Baylor University, speaking from the Riley Digitization Center, where this crucial work has been carried on. Thank you so much for sharing your time and your stories with us, Bob, and keep on that journey. Thank you, sir. To find out how you can help with the Black Gospel Music Restoration Project, 
visit the project's website at baylor.edu forward slash lib forward slash gospel.